0: Start your day tomorrow with Up First, the morning news podcast from NPR. Apple podcast reviewer Eve Bethel calls it concise and comprehensive. I listen to Up First every morning on my walk to work, she says. It gives me a great summary of the top news stories during the day and the upcoming week. Wake up with Up First tomorrow morning on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. Just a quick heads up before we get started that there is some language in this episode that might be offensive to some people. It's in the first few minutes of the story. All right, here we go.
1: I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded. So there's this movie that I had never heard of until we started reporting these latest episodes about Donald Trump and his closest advisors. A movie that does not seem like it could have anything to do with the news, but it does. It's called The Indian Runner, and it came out in
2: 1991.
3: The Indian knew the deer moved in circles.
1: It was directed by Sean Penn, and it's actually about this guy who comes back from Vietnam to his small Midwestern town and starts freaking out and having these hallucinations that he's a Native American messenger. I'm an Indian runner. Who runs through the cornfields. Viggo Mortensen is the main character. His girlfriend is Patricia Arquette.
4: I happen to love you more than anybody ever loved anybody before.
1: The wizened bartender is Dennis Hopper.
5: Always watch place for me.
1: Benicio Del Toro is this weird drug dealer dude. <laughs>
0: right?
1: And the movie totally tanked. The budget was an estimated $7 million, but it grossed under $200,000. The reason we're interested in this movie is one of the people who helped raise that $7 million was Steve Bannon. The Indian Runner was Steve Bannon's first ever film project. He would much later go on to write and direct a handful of his own films political films that promoted his particular kind of conservatism. That's eventually what got him to Washington. Back in the 90s, though, Steve Bannon was a money guy in Hollywood, an investment banker who was just starting to dabble in films. That's when Mindy Afram first met him. I've always raised money for the films I make. Mindy calls herself a big-time lefty, and she worked at the production company that made The Indian Runner. And one day, Steve Bannon walks into a staff meeting. So everyone was sort of checking
6: each other out. And Steve came down and sort of sat down next to me. And maybe we had met once, maybe we hadn't, I don't remember. And um, he, he sort of he cursed at me, basically saying, you know, who the fuck are you and what the fuck are you doing here kind of thing. You know, who needs more creativity, you know, something silly. And everyone was sort of quiet. And I, I just looked at Steve and I said, you know, I don't know who the fuck you are. What the fuck are you doing here with that suit? And the two of us, and we just started laughing so hard, him and I. And and that's how we became friendly. I don't think anyone had ever said that to him, and all of a sudden he goes, Oh, I, I like you. I said, Yeah, why not? You know. After that, he never said a harsh word to me again. And I knew him for 20 years.
1: Steve Bannon grew up in an Irish Catholic family in a middle-class neighborhood in Richmond, Virginia. He went to an all-boys Catholic military high school, then to Virginia Tech. Then he was a lieutenant in the Navy and eventually got an MBA from Harvard Business School. After that, he got a job in finance at Goldman Sachs in the late 80s, when the company was looking to invest more in film and TV projects. So Bannon moves to L.A. and works in Goldman's office there years later, he leaves Goldman, starts his own small investment company in Beverly Hills. And like a lot of people who come to Hollywood, Bannon wanted to be a creative type, too. He wanted to make stuff. Like after The Indian Runner, he and his brother started their own film company. And this is basically what most of us know about Steve Bannon, right? Spend some time in Hollywood, making money, trying to make movies, and eventually goes to Washington. But what we wanted to know is whether there were signs early in his creative work of the guy who would later help Donald Trump become president and for a time, occupy one of the most powerful positions in the White House. Like, was he always this right-wing populist nationalist we know now?
5: We are declaring war on the Republican establishment.
1: Now that he's out of the White House and waging hashtag war against Trump's own party?
5: Nobody's safe. We're coming after all of them, and we're going to win. Or is this just
1: Steve Bannon's latest production? To try to find the answer, we're going to look at the films Steve Bannon wanted to make and at a film he finally did make. A film that totally changed his trajectory.
7: Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from the YMCA, a nonprofit striving to provide places and programs that bring people together. The Y recognizes many teens do not have access to college and career planning, mentors, or safe spaces to gather. The Y offers programs, support, and services to help fill that need. Learn more about the impact of your donation at ymca.net slash giving. The Y for a better us.
1: So, okay, it's the early 90s. Steve Bannon is this finance guy living in Hollywood, and he's looking for more creative projects. Check, check, check. Ah, there we go. Okay. Test, 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 test. We are recording. Cool. And one of them is this chicken project, which embedded
0: producer Tom Dreisbach managed to unearth from the Richmond Times-Dispatch. And the title of the article is, The Famous Chicken is Poised for Barney-Style Career Launch. Like, Barney, the purple dinosaur. The famous
1: chicken is also known as the San Diego chicken, who, believe it or not, is one of the world's most
0: well-known mascots. So the article describes how Steve Bannon and his brother Chris Bannon had actually created a film company together. They called it Bannon Film Industries. And they had just completed a 30-minute video about the San Diego chicken. Okay. And there's this quote by Christopher Bannon in this article... Quote, ultimately, our goal is to build a Barney the Dinosaur-like industry. This video is really just the gateway event into the chicken industry, as silly as it sounds.
1: And this chicken film is basically the highlight reel
0: of all the silly things the San Diego chicken would do at football games,
1: baseball games. Bannon Film Industries, first word you see, in association with Funny Fowl Inc., Presents the chicken's greatest hits. Bits. The chicken's greatest bits. <laughs> and now he's like on the field being real silly.
0: Wow. He's a he's
1: a mascot. He's a silly oh, oh ha god ha. he laid eggs. He laid some eggs.
0: Which were baseballs.
1: Tell me why I should care at all about this this movie
0: well so as as they said in this article this is the very first thing that had the banner of bannon film industries Mm -hmm. steve bannon's production company and i asked other folks what the deal with this chicken movie was about and they were kind of like that's what everyone in hollywood does they just throw things at the wall see what works see what doesn't i don't think the chicken movie worked but you know that's who steve bannon was at the time trying things out, even if it had absolutely nothing to do with politics at all.
6: My opinion about Steve and why he did anything he did while he was in Hollywood was it was the lowest hanging fruit. That's Mindy Afram again. I think with Bannon, he was really just a money guy who wanted to play in Hollywood, just like a whole lot of guys like him.
1: And we should say here that some of Bannon's money projects did pay off, and they paid off well. Like, he got a small piece of Seinfeld before it went into syndication. Bannon's financial disclosures for the White House put his net worth between 11 and $49 million. But still, like I said, he really wanted to be a creative type, and he spent a long time casting around for projects that would stick. And the person who knows all about Steve Bannon's creative endeavors— is Julia Jones. Julia Jones had just moved to L.A. around the time of the Indian Runner and the Chicken Project. She'd studied English at Harvard and figured she might as well give screenwriting a try. And she meets Steve Bannon at something called a full moon party that was being thrown by Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas.
4: I guess I got up from the party and I went up to the bar to get a drink and Steve was there with his friends and he was talking about Harvard I was a little homesick, and there he was talking about Harvard. So, you know, I did go up to him and I said, Hi, Harvard. I'm Harvard, too. <laughs> the most obnoxious thing to say, probably, in the whole <laughs> world. <laughs> he was just like very, very nice and very charismatic. Chino's navy blazer, white shirt, loafers with no socks. Not my type. I'm an artist, right? So he's just like, well, what do you do? So was like, I'm a screenwriter. So he's like, what are you writing? So I said, I'm doing a screenplay on Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe. <laughs> and his eyes widened. He's like, oh, my God, I'm looking for a Shakespearean screenwriter. So I took his card, and the next week I was in his office talking about adapting Titus Andronicus, to be set in space. You know, Shakespeare meets Star Wars. So, by
1: 1995, Julia and Steve become full-time writing partners. And this is good news for Julia, who's a struggling screenwriter, because it means a regular paycheck. Steve has office space, he has money, and he has enthusiasm. And most of their projects are like Titus in Space. They are not overtly political At least, not in a right-wing way or a left-wing way. Julia says she and Steve were really into this Italian philosopher named Giordano Bruno, who believed that there are an infinite number of worlds in the universe, and who eventually was burned at the stake. So, they kick around all kinds of ideas, and then, in 2003, Steve says he wants to get serious. He asked Julia to come meet him at his daughter's soccer game.
4: And he said, okay, um, we're going to start our own... Movie com- film company. So I was so excited. And we met a couple times after that and made lists of all the things we wanted to make and everything. And
1: Can you tell me what was on that list of all the things you guys wanted to make?
4: Well, I remember there was a, a project that we always were interested in called uh, Will You Miss Me When I'm Gone? It's a beautiful book about the Carter family by um, Mark Zwanitzer. Like President Carter? No, 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 no. no. Carter? June Carter. Thank you. I was like, so it wasn't political. No, no, not at all. Beautiful, beautiful.
1: Julia gave us a copy of that original list of projects she and Steve wanted to work on with this new film company. Nobody's ever reported on this list before. To read it now is to be inside Steve Bannon's head in 2003. So here's some of the stuff on the list. And remember, these are just ideas in Steve and Julia's heads. Mm -hmm. There's Those Who Knew. It's a weekly TV show that Julia describes as a 60 minutes minutes for great great thinkers.
4: Thinkers. That we're entering the new millennium and people have to start thinking differently and, and that the greatest ideas are often the oldest ideas. The ancient wisdom, he called it. Very into Plato, very into Marcus Aurelius.
1: And then there are these really melodramatic stories that usually involve a naval officer. Steve Bannon, remember, was a naval officer. There's Navy Cross, about a young couple who gets married. He goes off to sea. She gets pregnant. He dies in war. She dies in childbirth. Julia says that was totally Steve. And there's That Hamilton Woman, which was maybe a remake of a 1941 film of the same name starring Vivian Leigh and Laurence Olivier. And it's about this dance hall girl who marries a diplomat but then has an affair with an admiral in the British Navy. There's a project about Infinity called Dig Infinity, a project based on the gospel of St. Mark, a project about the final hours of soldiers' lives on the battlefield, and A lot more Shakespeare. And there are a couple of projects that hint at the Steve Bannon we know today. There's Weed Patch, a documentary series that would tell us what actually happened to the people the novel Grapes of Wrath was based on this family of farmers who were driven out of Oklahoma by drought, some populism there, some white working class. There's Ark of Blood, based on the story of a famous whale ship sailing off Nantucket in the early 1800s and how the crew killed all their officers at sea. A typical mutiny story, but also a violent takedown of the elite. So yeah, a lot of history, a lot of military characters, some big ideas, some melodrama. But not some specific right-wing political agenda to be gleaned from this list. Until the list totally changes because Steve Bannon finally gets to make a film that lets him put his ideas all in one place. A film about Ronald Reagan. And that film opens the door to a whole new thing. After the break.
7: Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter, the hiring site that offers a smarter way to find quality candidates fast. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 top job boards with one click. Then their smart technology notifies the most qualified candidates to apply. In fact, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate through the site in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com embedded. Hello, hello.
1: Hey, how's it going? Doing great, Kelly. How are you? Good. We appreciate you. The Ronald Reagan Project started in 2003 when a guy named McKay Danes gets a letter from a guy who'd written a book about yes, Ronald Reagan.
3: And he said, uh, I believe I uh, discussed this book and I'm sending you a signed copy. You understand. The book
1: right? was called Reagan's War, the epic story of his 40-year struggle and final triumph over communism. It's by this guy who's a conservative writer and journalist, and it's all about how Reagan first battled communists in Hollywood and then eventually defeated communism in the Soviet Union and ended the Cold War. So McKay Danes teams up with another filmmaker named Tim Watkins. They start outlining a pretty straightforward
3: documentary based on the book. And they start doing interviews. And I'm looking in front of me because I pulled it out of my uh, bookshelf, the original transcripts from February 2004 of all of my interviews with these uh, remarkable men and women. I mean, from uh, Casper Weinberger, the secretary of defense, Edwin Meese, the attorney general, uh, Robert Allen, who was in the National Security Advisor. And so I was flying around with Tim doing these interviews when uh, when Tim made an association with someone in Hollywood that suddenly became involved in the production, and his name was Stephen Bannon. Tim Watkins
1: is also a conservative and East Coast Catholic like Bannon. He told The New Yorker he and Bannon connected when they were talking about this film. They agreed it was about something bigger than Reagan. It was about good versus evil. So Bannon says he'll help finance the film, and Tim and McKay keep working on it. And one day, McKay gets a call from Bannon.
3: I was on Constitution Avenue in D.C. I remember I was going down to a meeting for something.
1: How long was the phone call?
3: Not very long. Uh, if, you, if you stayed on the phone with Mr. Bannon along, it was not, uh, nothing was long. McKay, I'm taking this in a different direction. Thanks for all your help, kind of attitude.
1: McKay was off the job. He says he doesn't have any major hard feelings about it. That's just the way things work. But then he says the script changed dramatically. From a positive thing to something else,
3: because Ronald Reagan to me was always this very positive morning in America, you know, person. But Steve, I think, saw hey, more uh, deeper side of this can be shown that's bigger than Ronald Reagan.
2: Republican Rome's most admired statesman, Cato. The strongest. I
3: would never, in a million years, open a documentary quoting Cato from the Roman Republic. That is pure Steve Bannon.
2: Cato ended every speech with the same mantra. Carthago delenda est. Carthage must be
1: destroyed. The person who wrote this new script with Steve Bannon was Julia Jones. She says Bannon outlined the story, then he would dictate the narration to her while she typed. Which means to watch this film, like reading that wish list of Steve and Julie's projects, is a way to see into Steve Bannon's brain. And what you see there is starting to get closer to the Steve Bannon we know today. This idea that history is a struggle of good versus evil, and the only way to defeat evil is to fight, not to negotiate.
2: The film starts with World War I. The 20th century began with a gunshot the assassination
1: of Archduke Franz Ferdinand.
2: From this fever swamp
1: grows a beast. And then it starts talking about this thing called the beast. This bad thing that happens every few decades. Fascism.
7: Communism. Nazism.
2: The beast had always hated the same things. Religion, a free press, intellectual inquiry artistic expression, anything that elevated or empowered the individual. Eventually, we get to Ronald Reagan as he arrives in Hollywood. Son of a distant alcoholic father and a long-suffering religious mother, blown into town like so many others from anywhere USA. And by now, the beast is communism.
1: And the rest of the film is Reagan's war against this beast. And when it sticks to Reagan's history, it's pretty straightforward, if heavy-handed, with some flowery language and all these titles on screen like Word and Deed or quotes from Nietzsche. There's Reagan in Hollywood in the 40s when he was head of the Screen Actors Guild.
3: A number of motion picture unions and guilds were infiltrated and taken over by communist sympathizers.
1: Then Reagan challenges Jimmy Carter as an anti-establishment candidate. You start to hear some stuff you might hear Bannon saying now.
2: The Salons of Georgetown the seat of power for Washington's permanent governing class, dismissed President Reagan as nothing more than an amiable dunce. The Salons of Georgetown thing comes up a few times. Congress with a massive rearmament plan. So does the fact that
1: Reagan spent a lot of money to build up the military. Again, starting to sound a little familiar. Obsolete a generation of Soviet weaponry. There's another section that really strikes me now about how Reagan had a chance to make peace with Mikhail Gorbachev, but refuses.
2: He had taken Reagan to the mountaintop, tempted him with all to be a peacemaker, to win the Nobel Prize, to be an historic figure. Ronald Reagan refused. The
1: gambit works. Gorbachev backs down. And by the time the Cold War is over, the film makes it seem like Reagan has saved all of mankind.
5: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall.
1: And then there's this coda, which, by the way, Julia had no idea was in the film until she saw it at a screening. And the coda is all about 9-11 and terrorism, the new beast that is coming for us all. We see the planes crashing into the towers, then we see Muslims praying...
4: I was just aghast. I mean, the beast would be juxtaposed over Muslims praying.
2: The beast had always hated the same things religion, a free press, intellectual inquiry, artistic expression. Peace movements, speeches, and
1: petitions will not work against the beast, the narrator says. Carthago de lenda est. Carthage must be destroyed. Reviewers said this film was preaching to the choir or that it was basically just propaganda. The film was released in just over a dozen theaters. It made about 100000 bucks, And at any other time, that would have been that. Steve Bannon would have made this piece of what one journalist called agitprop, and then it would have just ended up on a shelf somewhere. But something else happened with this film. The year it came out, 2004... For the first time ever, there was a film festival in Hollywood for conservatives. And there's a panel at the festival called You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again, about how conservatives in Hollywood are basically treated like pariahs. And one of the panelists is Andrew Breitbart, a person who would later have a ton of influence over Steve Bannon. Back then, Breitbart was a blogger who lived here in LA. He'd worked for Ariane Huffington back when she was still a Republican. He'd worked for Matt Drudge. And at the time, he had just co-written a book called Hollywood Interrupted, Insanity Chic in Babylon, The Case Against Celebrity, which one reviewer said was all about runaway depravity in the entertainment business. Anyway, at the festival, there's a screening of Bannon's Reagan film. Steve Bannon told reporter Josh Green that after the screening, Andrew Breitbart comes bounding out of the audience and, and gives Bannon and, and a big was bear big hug.
7: hug. And was, was this, you know, exciting, charismatic figure. And, and Breitbart had this effect on a lot of people, not just Steve Bannon. Uh, the idea that he was this kind of uh, pied piper who was doing something very fun and exciting and important and doing it, you know, in the belly of the beast in, ho- in liberal Hollywood. Bannon was clearly attracted to that and instantly kind of fell into Breitbart's orbit.
1: It was right about this time that Breitbart was thinking about starting his own website, Breitbart.com, which started as a news aggregator and eventually grew to be what it is now, which is one of the most influential media outlets on the right with millions of readers a month. Back then, Breitbart needed help with funding and office space, two things Steve Bannon said he was good at. Breitbart was all about using the tools of Hollywood, storytelling, mass appeal, To take down what he saw as the corrupt elites of Hollywood and beyond. And suddenly, that list of dream projects that Steve Bannon and Julia Jones wanted to make changed and got very political. Here are some of the new projects Jihad, the war against the West. Michael Moore hates America. Is it true what they say about Anne, the Anne Coulter Project? Do as I say, not as I do. Studies in liberal hypocrisy. And then at the bottom of the document is this paragraph. The key to the success of the conservative documentary lies in tying together compatible funding sources, e.g. the NRA, church and political groups, while leveraging off the media base of AM talk radio and cable news. Also right around this time, Julia Jones says Steve Bannon started spending a lot of time in Washington. At some point he tells her he wants to be the Lenny Riefenstahl of George Bush. Lenny Riefenstahl was a German filmmaker considered to be one of the most effective propagandists of her time. She made films for the Nazis. At some point, it all got to be too much for Julia. She worked with Steve for a few more years, but then stopped when she says he just went too far to the right. Julia describes herself as left of Bernie Sanders. But still, she says she has mostly good memories of Steve Bannon. Like the time he just gave her the keys to his condo, no questions asked, when she needed a place to live. But there is this one bad thing that Julia still thinks about. It happened one day at Steve's office in Beverly Hills on the second floor. This other company called New Market was on the first floor.
4: The back stairs were extremely steep, maybe, I don't know, 20 steps or more, extremely steep. And I was standing at the top of the steps and I tripped. And I just went headlong down the stairs, just boom, straight down. Luckily, my head stopped like four inches from the wall, or I probably wouldn't be here. And I was lying there on the floor, and Steve was in the doorway talking to somebody at Newmarket, I guess. And he looked down at me. He said absolutely nothing. He stepped over me, and he walked upstairs. So it was obvious to me, Steve was saying, I don't like people who fall downstairs." You know, there was just this, like... Uh, this just disdain, that kind of came over him, and and I think he probably saw that I was breathing, so he just like walked, up stepped over me, and walked up the stairs without saying a word. He didn't say, "Are you okay?" Nothing. Nothing. So, uh, I think that th- that's the kind of elitism I think that was sort of always there. Uh. Steve had, like, a very, very low regard for, for people who were low intelligence or he didn't... I don't know how to put it, but, I mean, he was always an elitist.
1: The Steve Bannon we see now, Julia says, this populist man of the people, is not the Steve Bannon she knew from the nearly 20 years she worked with him. We contacted Steve Bannon to ask about Julia's story, but he did not respond. We'll be right back.
4: Hi, I'm Stacey Bannock-Smith from NPR's Planet Money podcast, a business and economics podcast for everyone, even if you don't think you like business and economics. Every week, we find stories that help make the world make a little more sense. Like, why is milk in the back of the store? How did credit reports get started? Or where does North Korea get its money? Listen to Planet Money on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Okay, so this Reagan film opens the door for Steve Bannon to people like Andrew Breitbart, who... By 2004 is this outspoken provocateur and inspiration to this new, young, anti-establishment conservative movement online and on cable news. And it opens the door to funding. Like, Steve Bannon's film about Ronald Reagan did not win an Oscar. But at this point, it doesn't matter. Steve Bannon's Reagan film helps Bannon become part of a movement. James Ulmer documented this time in Steve Bannon's life. James is a journalist who covered Hollywood for decades. And James was introduced to Steve Bannon by Julia Jones. Remember how Julia said Steve wanted to be the Lenny Riefenstahl of George Bush? She actually asked Steve if James could use that quote in a newspaper story.
4: Steve said yes, but he wanted to change the quote. And he said, I want him to say I want to be the Lenny Riefenstahl of the GOP. Because George Bush had just been reelected." So... He modified that.
5: You know, I don't normally do politics. I usually did film, but this is obviously film. So, it's
1: 2005, and James Ulmer decides to write a profile of Steve Bannon, this new conservative filmmaker, for the New York Times.
5: So, I went to his office.
1: Ulmer says Bannon was one of the smartest people he ever met in Hollywood.
5: Immediately we hit it off. I mean, like two clams at high tide. I mean, it was really interesting. We started talking about... A lot of kind of heady intellectual things. I mean, pretty soon it became evident that, yes, Steve was interested in Shakespeare, but funny enough, in the very violent plays of Shakespeare. And the more I talked with him, you kind of get the feeling that you're getting, I don't know, you're gradually getting sucked down this really interesting rabbit hole because. He's very persuasive.
1: James would hang out in Bannon's office, and Bannon would go on these really interesting rants about how a major shift was happening, a culture war. Bannon said that Hollywood was just starting to wake up to.
5: So he'd go to this whiteboard, and he'd, um, and I wrote about this in the story. I mean, he, he he had the word Lord on the whiteboard, and he circled it, and there were all kinds of other circles on the whiteboard leading to different names of different movies. And I said, "What's that?" He said, "Well." think of it, uh, James. He said 2004, February 25th, seminal watershed weekend in the history of the Hollywood Rite. I said, what do you mean watershed? And he said, well, The Passion of the Christ is released on Ash Wednesday. And then four or five days later, you have one of the great Christian allegories, uh, Lord of the Rings, he said, was at the Oscars and won 11 Academy Awards. He said, now that's he says, an example of the great Sodom and Gomorrah of Hollywood bowing to the Christian God. I just kind of roll my eyes, and I said, really? He said, yeah, but do you guys in the media ever take notice? He said, no, because 99% of the content of the media, uh, of the media's sewage pipes, as he called it, is a culture of death, not life. And I just kind of thought, okay, that's a quote.
1: The other thing that was happening at the time was Michael Moore who had just had this huge success with his anti-George Bush film, Fahrenheit 9-11. It won Best Picture It Can. It made over 100 million bucks.
5: That was a real game-changer in Hollywood, because for the first time it rallied all these little Republican groups that many of whom didn't talk to each other, many of whom didn't like each other, many of whom were establishment versus anti-establishment, Christian versus Catholic, Jews versus Christian, uh, money versus no money. They had no leaders. Steve wasn't their leader, but he was putting all these little pieces together slowly. All these
1: pieces, meaning all the closeted conservatives in Hollywood. Steve called them
5: um, friends of Dorothy. (laughs) Dorothy. (laughs) <laughs> it was oh like, my! You're kidding. No, me. friends of Dorothy. That what was a complete, his, you know, a complete rip off. A complete rip off of you know the code word for if Being you were homosexual gay. in yeah. the old days. Yeah. Wow. So, and Steve Bannon wanted all these friends of Dorothy to join forces. He said, "But dude, what connects everything here with all these people I'm showing you to, whether it's Hollywood or or DC? What connects them is the culture of life. Okay, that's where the money was."
1: That money came from right-wing organizations and from private donors. The Washington Post found Steve Bannon eventually made millions of dollars in fees to make films that usually went straight to video or were excerpted on Fox News. One of his main backers was Citizens United, which made its own films that were critical of Michael Moore and Hillary Clinton. Bannon met the head of Citizens United around the same time James Ulmer was writing about him. Citizens United, of course, is most well-known for winning a Supreme Court case that allowed corporations to engage directly in campaign spending. And Bannon's plan, learned from Andrew Breitbart, was to beat Hollywood at its own game. To take money from the right and use the tools of the left to take down the left. Bannon and Citizens United never had as big a hit as Fahrenheit 9-11, but again, at some point, it doesn't matter they were becoming part of something much larger. Then comes 2008, the election of Barack Obama, and now the movement has an enemy. And this is when Steve Bannon starts writing and directing his own films. It's his most productive time as a filmmaker ever.
7: Financial arm again. 25 trillion, 50 trillion.
1: In 2010, he makes Generation Zero about the economic crisis, the fault of the banks, and the rise of the Tea Party. I
4: shudder to imagine what an unchecked, unlimited Obama radicalism would be like,
1: and in battle, battle for America, an anti-Obama film ahead of the midterm elections.
3: Political
1: and then Bannon starts to get even more directly involved in politics. In 2012, he makes a film called The Undefeated about Any Sarah Palin. Politician. She was a
6: champion of our ideals.
1: Who he had backed for president until she decided not to run. There was The Hope and the Change about people who voted for Obama but were disappointed. Yeah, the with him. District of Corruption, an early Drain the Swamp manifesto arguing that elites in both parties are corrupt. Occupy Unmasked. About how the Occupy movement was radical and dangerous. Of the
5: radicals behind the Occupy movement.
1: Also in 2012, something else happens. Andrew Breitbart suddenly dies of heart failure, he's 43 years old. Steve Bannon takes over as head of Breitbart's website and revamps it with millions of dollars from the family of billionaire computer scientist Robert Mercer. And according to emails recently obtained by Buzzfeed, Breitbart News and the Mercer's Money help mainstream white supremacists and neo-Nazis who, starting a few years ago, called themselves the alt-right. And we all know the rest of the story, right? 2016, Bannon takes over Donald Trump's campaign. Donald Trump wins. Bannon joins the White House. And then he starts producing the biggest story in the world. He helps write Trump's inaugural speech about American carnage. He pushes executive orders banning people from several majority Muslim countries. And he's behind the speech in Poland, where Trump celebrates Western civilization, which many consider to be a dog whistle to the alt-right. This past August, Bannon leaves the White House, goes back to Breitbart News to wage what he and other Breitbart staffers call hashtag war. His goal now is to totally disrupt the Republican Party by helping right-wing populist candidates defeat traditional establishment Republicans.
5: There's a time and season for everything. And right now, it's a season of war against a GOP establishment.
1: Steve Bannon often tells reporters that he has been a populist nationalist all along. But our reporting suggests something different. We found that it was only after he made his Reagan film and found himself in the orbit of Andrew Breitbart that he started moving toward his latest political incarnation. We contacted Steve Bannon to ask about all this, but he did not respond to multiple requests. Still, this political transformation of his makes me wonder. Did he really believe all the stuff those later films were about? Or did he make this stuff because it put him at the center of this new movement? Stuff that was going to get him funding to make more stuff. Some people say Bannon has been Bannon all along. Like, he's always been a serious Catholic and a student of history. And that 9-11 and the financial crisis only sharpened his beliefs that we should curb immigration, put America first, and defend Western values. But after doing all this reporting, we think what Bannon does is often tactical. This issue came up at the end of that recent BuzzFeed story I mentioned, right? The one where they obtained emails showing how Bannon and the Mercers actively supported, with publicity and money, people tied to white supremacists. Like, maybe he doesn't really agree with those white supremacists who helped with the rise of people like Milo Yiannopoulos, the rise of Breitbart News, and the rise of Donald Trump. Maybe those people are just numbers to him I mean I guess if you're down with white supremacists you're down with white supremacists and no one should care why you're down with them but if you are tactical that means you can change you wanted to be the Lenny Riefenstahl for George Bush then you wanted to be the Lenny Riefenstahl for the Republican Party now you want to blow up the Republican Party the world moves fast the attention span is not long I mean, this is a guy who's invested in Biosphere 2, Nasal Spray, the San Diego Chicken, and World of Warcraft. Like, maybe after he gets tired of hashtag war, Steve Bannon will move on to something else. This episode was reported by me and Tom Dreisbach, and it was produced by Tom. It was edited by Yowei Shaw, Neil Carruth, and Jane Marie and Dan Gallucci of Little Everywhere, with help from Chris Benderev, Brett Bachman, and Arnie Seipel. Our technical director is Andy Huther. Thanks also to Susan Streitfeld and to Joshua Green. He's the journalist you heard talking about Steve Bannon and Andrew Breitbart's bear hug. He's a correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek, and his book is called Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. It is available now. Digital production for this episode was by Alexander McCall. Fact-checking by Greta Pittenger. Our lawyer is Ashley Messenger. Our theme song is by Colin Wamsgans. Additional music is by Jonathan Hirsch. Embedded is executive produced by me, Chris Turpin, and Anya rundman you can hear more npr on your local public radio station on another show i host called all things considered next week on embedded we will look at another top trump advisor who is still in the white house
7: my name is jared kushner i am senior advisor to president donald j trump when my father-in-law decided to run for president I his
1: campaign. that's all for now thanks for listening